Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Modern creative teams are pulled in a thousand directions. Maintaining a functional project plan is hard. Wrangling designers and writers, copy edits and clients, all on deadline, can get messy fast. Most collaboration tools aren't made for creatives and creative projects, but Airtable is. Airtable makes it easy to organize stuff, people, ideas, anything you can imagine. That's why leading creative teams at places like Experience Design Agency Huge, Product Development Agency Planetary, and retail brand United Colors of Benetton use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everything on schedule and let creative people be creative. Visit Airtable.com glossy today to get $50 in free credits. Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter, Hillary Milnes, and with me this week is Jessica Lee, the CEO of Modern Citizen. Hi, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. So you guys are one of the most talked about direct-to-consumer brands right now. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> are we? I, I mean, I you, always, you always hear, well, who's the next Everlane? Who's the next uh, digitally native, buzzy mm-hmm. brand to come up? Um, tell us about how you how you started the brand it's it's pretty new and yeah. all the all the pressures that come with that it's not fun it's not easy <laughs> yeah totally and being in san francisco is also like an interesting place to um build a dnb as we say <laughs> digital sure. native brand yeah um so i i would say actually we have a pretty untraditional story um considering where we come from and where we were founded um we bootstrapped our business and kind of built our business in a very organic way so actually more traditional uh in terms of like how creative businesses used to be built, which is sort of bootstrapped and kind of like building a customer base and some sort of a loyal following over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't finance a business through institutional funds. We raised friends and family um, to kind of start the business and built it brick by brick. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been really the story of our lives for the last three years is trying to build um, a really organic um, community and a brand um, that can kind of like be a self-sustaining business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how Modern Citizen started, um, which is, yeah, very different than um, I think probably what has been uh, more um, in vogue in terms of how to start a direct-to-consumer business in the last couple of years. Absolutely. And I think we look at it as like the first phase of yeah. of these digitally native brands, second phase. I guess we're in, we're in phase two, maybe mm-hmm. now it's even phase three, but yeah. I think people have learned their lesson. Mm-hmm. Don't raise a bunch of money. Totally. E-commerce <laughs> 3.0. Yeah. <laughs> as we say. Three, yeah, 3.0. Yes. So, so yeah, were you, what was your background when you started the brand and did you kind of look around and who did you, I mean, I'm sure you'll say that, that you're unique, but who did you kind of look to in the market to compare yourself to and kind of even say like, here's how we'll start our brand. Um, here's what we kind of want to avoid. Yeah, absolutely. So I, my background is in retail. Um, my first job coming out of school was at Gap Inc. Nice. Um, doing their retail management program. So kind of learning all about like the business of fashion. Uh, and that to me was like an incredible experience, grounding experience to just understand like you know, retail 101. Um, what does it mean to build a brand? What does it mean to put the customer first? I think that those were kind of the two key things I learned from Gapping because, you know, Gapping is a storied retailer. Gap brand was the first direct-to-consumer brand uh, in specialty retail. And that's something I think they definitely don't get credit for mm-hmm. anymore kind of in today's market. Um, but it was a really incredible experience. I spent a lot of time on the digital side. So I worked for the e-commerce division um, called Gapping Direct. Uh, and while I was there, I worked on a number of different types of projects. But one of the things I also spent time doing was 
um, M&A diligence. Mm-hmm. Um, so really researching companies that potentially could be acquisition targets um, for the portfolio. And that is really actually where I got inspired to start Modern Citizen. Um, this was like 2000 and. Uh, 12 uh, when we were doing a lot of this research and like kind of really um, looking into uh, digitally native brands or retailers that were targeting young women. Mm-hmm. And the two brands that I, I spent a lot of time researching were Nasty Gal uh, mm-hmm. and ModCloth. And this is like an era when this is like pre girl boss. So, like before all of that sort of happened, and right. they were still these really amazing businesses that still a lot of people hadn't heard of, but um, they had built a really loyal. Um, community and like a loyal following uh, and a kind of cult following Mm -hmm. um, really for both of those brands. Um, So what I loved about those retailers was that, you know, they themselves as retailers were brands. So even though they sold other people's products, they sold, you know, everything from clothing to accessories to home goods. the customer was connecting with them because like they wanted to be a Nastigal. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted to be part of the mod cloth community. And I thought that those two founders also had really authentic stories and really executed um, against that brand vision in a way that was really seamless and authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like what I loved about those two businesses. Uh, neither of them was really my personal aesthetic um, per se, but you know, really anchoring it in community, this idea of like, you know, brand kind of like over being a retailer and then also um, an accessible price point, which I actually also found very inspiring. Right. Um, you know, I think we live in a world where if you value experience and you value like being able to afford a mortgage on a home and like being able to go to like your friend's wedding in Spain and like all these other things, like to spend, you know, $500 plus on an outfit just feels like it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. anymore. And so that was something to me that I felt really passionate about is that if we were to, if I was to start something, um, it would have to be anchored at an accessible price point, um, not only because that's a big business opportunity, but also because it can touch more women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that was something that was really important to me. Right. And so what are your price points? Uh, our average ticket is about $75. Okay. Yeah, that's accessible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and now we're looking at Nasty Gal, ModCloth, both have respective owners that, that aren't Gap Bank. Yeah. Uh, so you left... You left that area um, and and started Modern Citizen. Yeah. And what, you know, how do you find this community? Like you said, like people, like companies today need a brand that people really want to connect with, yeah. quote unquote, like brands can't be at arm's length anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you do that? How do you reach customers in a way that will make them say like, oh, this is, this is something that I would forego all my, you know, usual, you know, retailers to to invest in and and almost take a chance on since it's so new. Totally, to like discover. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think for us, the key is sort of, and we're very lucky in this regard, like we are the customer. So every single person who's on the Modern Citizen team um, is the customer that we're targeting. You know, this is a woman who is like, you know, generally a white collar professional, is like primarily dressing for work, but doesn't want to wear like quote unquote work clothes because Mm -hmm. I think that that definition has sort of really changed a lot in the last like even five years um, of what's acceptable to wear to work and also wants to feel like an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the way that we kind of bring people together is similar to, you know, the Nasty Gal and Mod Cloth um, play in that we're aligning people around an aesthetic and a lifestyle. You know what I mean? There's a certain look, right, that we are also kind of like putting forth into the world. And that's like kind of really what connects us. Um, but what we're also doing is doing it at a democratic price point, which means that like no one's excluded. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's also the inclusive piece of it is that like, you know, of course, you have to like our style in order to like want to shop at Modern Citizen. If you're very into, you know, vintage or very into like, you know, some other very specific aesthetic, like you may not find things that you like. But if you like that modern, you know, minimalist with interest is like how <laughs> we mm-hmm. like to say it. Right. If you like that look, then we have something for you. And again, price point is is not a barrier mm-hmm. because we are anchored in a price point that is intentionally accessible. Um, so that's kind of like just from a product standpoint, I think how we draw people in. Uh, and then in terms of our message, what we are trying to do is really 
elevate that woman I was just talking about, the woman who's like, you know, spending 80% of her life at work. She's building a career for herself. She's making moves, you know, she's kind of going places. I think that's something that that idea uh, of being able to say like, we're here to support you in that and empower you in that by making it so that you don't have to choose, you know, between your mortgage and your friend's wedding in Spain and this dress that you really want. Like you can have all three because mm-hmm. you deserve it and you have worked for it and you sort of, you own it. And I think that that's something that is, is a very empowering message. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just do it with a little bit of like, you know, humor, I guess, right. And kind of just like authentic, like directness right. <laughs> is the best way I can put it. There's like authenticity there um, because we're that customer. Like we're thinking about that all the time. Even when we price product, we say to ourselves, like, would I pay $80 for that? Like, does that feel like that's worth $80? And if we don't feel like it's worth $80, we're talking about what we do think it's worth. And that's like, you know, two dinners out, you know, on a weeknight, right? Like that's something I'm sacrificing. So like, how can we put ourselves in the mind of the customer mm-hmm. about how she would be making these calculations? Um, because that's really important. And it just demonstrates that like we have like, you know, deep empathy for her. Right. Especially when you're looking at a market that, you know, these middle tier brands that 20 years ago were doing so well or have been totally eaten up by fast fashion. Do you think that this customer is one that wants to get out of that cycle and, you know, not be in that fast fashion trap anymore? Are you, are you going after the fast fashion customer? Would you say? Yeah. You know, I think when we think about the word fast fashion, we don't think about it as much as like a disposable culture. We think about it more as like nimble supply chain, Mm. right? Which I think to a lot of customers, it's hard, hard to understand kind of what goes on behind the scenes because there's just so much that is required to make a fashion business successful and to make it work and and efficient. Um, So when we think about fast, we think about um, how do we make it efficient for the customer um, rather than it being about price point necessarily when we think about that phrase. Um, so for us, fast fashion is like our version of it is, you know, we deliver monthly drops of inventory, usually about 50 styles a month. And that's across clothing uh, and accessories and, and home and beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we just let the customer react to it. So in a way, like there's that constant newness, you know, we definitely want to anchor ourselves in a way where um, we have a fashion point of view and we know our customer is a fashion girl. And so she likes to see that newness, but we also don't want to deliver so much newness that it's overwhelming, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of pages of new arrivals. It's like, you need to have a glass of wine before you can even <laughs> get into that <laughs> situation, right? It's, it's, it's overwhelming to have right. to, you know, sift through like a hundred black dresses with a balloon sleeve, right? But if you, you know, can deliver two or three options, and just like put it in front of the customer and see if she loves it and then that's enough like mm-hmm. she doesn't need to see more than three she's only going to buy one so it really is about that edit everything comes down to the edit I think for us um, right. but it is that nice in-between place of having newness and things that kind of keep her interest and make sure that she always kind of feels current mm-hmm. um, but not doing it in a way that feels overwhelming it's something she can really digest right so it seems like you could talk about your customer for a long time like yeah. you said you're her, uh, her. You're, you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah so how how do you get the word out there? How do you raise brand winners? We think all the time, would, or we're talking to brands all the time that, you know, customer acquisition is just becoming so expensive yep. by the day. All these brands are spending so much more on marketing and that's to buy one customer once, which is mm-hmm. just so unsustainable. How do you fit marketing into a sustainable growth plan as a young brand? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, because we never raised um, institutional funding and mm-hmm. we had such limited capital to begin with, we actually never really built a marketing budget. It's really only in the last six months that we've started to invest, like here and there a little bit in Facebook and Instagram. Um, but we've never had like kind of a, the opportunity to even blow our money on acquisition. <laughs> we've had to be really careful. So in the very beginning, we just tried to focus on the levers that 
were free and a a were free and b allowed us to connect directly to the customer so that's email marketing right like content marketing through email that's social media um even pr we didn't have a pr agency until last year um and when we were looking for the right person we really sought out somebody who we felt like had authentic connections with like the women that we wanted to speak to and Mm -hmm. it wasn't about you know a big flashy agency um because for us it's all about the substance it's about that meaning and like the depth of connection is really important so we spent all of our time focused on retention Mm -hmm. um so i would say that like in terms of what we look like in terms of our metrics we're probably flipped from almost every other e-commerce business in terms of what percentage of our revenue is coming from returning customers we have probably one of the highest um, rebuy rates so that's like percentage of customers who have bought more than once mm-hmm. um, that I've ever seen actually in the industry and like while I would love to say that was like purely intentional a lot of it was just you know necess- necessity is the mother of invention a little bit of like we had to focus on that because we didn't really have any other option to necessarily just fill the top of the funnel as they say right. we had to focus on the middle and the end and mm-hmm. and to me actually in hindsight now if you can have retention metrics that are really strong, like what that demonstrates is that you are giving the customer something she wants and she's coming back because you're doing a good job. Right. You know what I mean? And not necessarily because you're giving her a coupon or because you're like, you know, trying to trick her into <laughs> like buying something again and then she didn't right. even realize that she was buying it. You know, like it's, we're not doing any of that. What we're saying is just like, this is what we do. We want to excel at being able to offer you value on top of that fashion point of view. Uh, and if you like what this is, like we hope you come back. You know what I mean? And, and you know that if you email us, you're going to talk to a real person and that like, it's going to be a friendly, like welcoming experience mm-hmm. um, while still having that, you know, refinement and that kind of like minimalist, like really aspirational aesthetic. Um, but you also get that like warmth too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what we've tried to just deliver on because it's what we know knew we could execute. Uh, and that's really where our focus has been for the last couple of years. Right. This year, um, we hope to be able to do more experimentation across channels. So whether that's performance marketing, whether that's, you know, more sophisticated drip campaigns and our email marketing and those types of things, like to start to bring in some of that growth mindset into it. Um, but yeah, that just has never been our focus historically. So I think that like our perspective and our approach, our philosophy around marketing always starts with like that returning customer. Mm-hmm. Do you mean if she's coming back, um, again, we're doing something right. Mm-hmm. And and assumingly, if since you are doing something right, it'll grow from there, even if it's a little bit slower than, than some of the brands that we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. I think because we haven't raised institutional capital, you know what I mean? We've really raised from friends and family and angel investors. Like there's not that pressure to just hit a number just to hit it. You know, mm-hmm. for us, it's about that sustainability. Like, are we scaling losses or are we kind of building towards something? And we're definitely not doing the former. Like for us, it's all about that sustainable growth in a way that makes sense um, for the business Mm -hmm. and allows us to also just be really careful. You know what I mean? About spending in channels, just making sure that there's ROI there. Right. Um, And so what's the, what's the most successful channel for you guys? uh, That's actually a great question. Um, Really? (laughs) What's funny is about when you look at metrics, I mean, email by far is like kind of the channel we focus the most on. Mm -hmm. So I think that that obviously has been kind of like historically our best performing channel in terms of um, the marketing levers that you can pull. It's so simple. Yeah. It's really the basics. Exactly. (laughs) It's like she wants to subscribe to your email list and she didn't unsubscribe. Right. And so that relationship is like she's in control and she can leave at any time that she wants. Um, So in terms of levers, I'd say that's the most successful one. But still a very large majority of our revenue is attributed to direct and organic search. Mm. So it's a little hard to say like which channels are actually producing that because, you know, there's attribution, the question of like, you know, is it last click? Is it like, did they, you know, view it on Instagram, but then like typed it in to their, you know, desktop. It's so hard to trace those things. So since such a large majority of our traffic is still coming from organic um, search and direct, it's actually hard to say. Um, But from the ones that we can measure, email by far um, Mm -hmm. is our best performing. Today's sponsor is Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. 
The creative world is constantly evolving, and to keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable is modern software. Its fields can handle any content you throw at them. Add attachments, long text notes, check boxes, links to records and other tables, even barcodes. Whatever you need to stay organized. That's why when the team at WeWork needed a tool to manage their entire creative process from ideation to content creation, they turned to Airtable. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. Try it today. Just head to Airtable.com glossy to receive $50 in free credits. And it's funny because you picture your own inbox and I get so many emails, but mm-hmm. like... I do click them. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, because it's like easiest to like, it's an easier way to communicate. I think especially as like, you know, platforms like Instagram, like change their um, algorithms around their feed and things like that. And that's something where, you know, the user isn't in control. Whereas like for your own email inbox, like, yeah, you can unsubscribe at any time. Sometimes it's hard to get off certain lists right. yeah. <laughs> and they make it really hard um, to get off of them. But for us, it's sort of like, a, we hope you kind of like still want to open our content. If you don't, that's also okay too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you maybe will see an Instagram ad like later instead. And that's like the way you want to engage with us. Um, but for our customers who are on that email list, it's a very engaged audience. Right. And so, so going off of that, coming from a small, like working with a small budget that you're being really careful with, wh- how do you figure out where to, where to prioritize? Where would you say the bulk of your spending has to go? And then where, how do you figure it out from there? Well, I, th- I would probably say we're not maybe at that level yet where um, we have insights on spend because truly the amount of money we've spent on marketing has been lifetime to date, less than 5% of our sales. Mm-hmm. Well, so over, we're, overall, yeah. not even just in marketing. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, honestly, I think that we have just been so careful. Mm-hmm. It's never really felt like we've taken a big bet yet. I would say the most recent one that has proven itself in terms of the worthiness of the investment has been offline retail for us. So we opened a store Mm -hmm. um, in San Francisco last year. It's our home market um, and actually just two blocks away from our corporate office. Uh, And that investment for us at first was very scary. Obviously we're in a, you know, big city and San Francisco real estate is expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a risk. Um, We did it as a pop-up obviously just because we wanted to be able to test the market, but it was a nine month commitment, which for a really small company, again, that doesn't have institutional financing, it was a gamble. Um, And we really didn't know what to expect, but I, you know, we tried to just be as hustly as we possibly could be, you know, got the keys on Wednesday, open by Friday, like kind of Mm -hmm. like just, had to make it work. Um, One billion trips to Ikea, (laughs) just a lot of things. Uh, A Craigslist, you know what I mean? Sourcing for a lot of our fixtures and those types of things. We just were really, really hustly about it. Uh Um, And it proved itself like tenfold, even within the first couple of weeks. Um, And it was one of those moments where we were like, a, why didn't we do it sooner, right? And like, you know, B, I do know why we didn't do it sooner because we were afraid. <laughs> we didn't know mm-hmm. um, how it would perform. Um, but I think that that has definitely been a very worthwhile investment of dollars, a little bit more risk upfront to, you know, make sure it's full of inventory, right? And like that's shoppable and those types of things. Um, but the unit economics really work for offline retail for us. Uh, and so it will be an area where we're going to be investing in more. Right, so uh, it's a profitable channel. Yes. So where do you think this whole idea that, you know, in 2011, you had Michael Praisman of Everlane saying that, you know, I'd open a store over my dead body. That's not a direct quote, but basically <laughs> what he was saying, what's, what, what changed for these brands? Um, you know, for me, I came from a stores business. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gapping is like a very kind of like a uh, very smart real estate company in a lot of ways too, uh, in terms of how they've scaled all of their brands. Like I've always believed in stores because especially for the apparel category, like how else are you going to know really like how something fits? Um, and you know, us being small, we don't offer free shipping and free returns yet. Um, because, 
we can't afford to. <laughs> um, but so, you know, we're, to your point, you're asking the customer to take a risk on a discovery brand she's never seen before, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously as a consumer, your preference would be like, let me just like check it out. Let me like make sure, um, A, I know what I'm getting. Uh, and also B, that like I understand my fit and my sizing so I can then trust the online experience later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that for apparel as a category has never gone away that need um, to be able to touch and feel the product, to try on the product and understand the fit. I think the expectation from customers is just that the names and the doors needed to change, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to get out of bed to like go to a store that I've been to a hundred times in my life. Like I would though to check out a new brand that like maybe is coming from a different city or like that, you know, I've read about a lot online, but I've never had the opportunity to see the product in person. And I want to be able to experience that. Mm-hmm. I think that's the difference. Right. Uh, and then also now a focus on experience too. Um, one of the nice things about what we're doing in San Francisco. And I think part of the reason why we've been able to build community is that we do do things beyond just shopping in the store um, there's community and there's events and like we build programming um, you know we're doing everything from like a salon series you know where we have a panel conversation to wellness workshops where we're ticketing these events even and like customers are coming to like find that connection and to like do it under the like umbrella of modern citizen and in in the way that we would execute it um, but they're coming for that connection and that's something different than just transaction right and how many events would you say you do on the reg at least three a month. Wow. At that's, least. A lot, that's a lot. Yeah. That are outside of shopping. So right. like that aren't even shopping focused. Right. They're really more about kind of like, what do we think our customer would find interesting? Right. And some are ticketed, you said? Yeah. Some are ticketed. People are paying to come. Yeah. Um, Revenue streams. Diversified. Yeah. <laughs> actually, that idea came from a customer wow. where she told us She's like, like, you know, yeah, I mean like it's 10, $15 and we actually give the customer $15 gift card in exchange for that $15 oh, just okay. to make sure they get a hundred percent value out of it. Yeah. But it's really more just like a flake factor making Still. sure that like, you know, they value the experience and that they won't just like not come last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if we have like an instructor coming in or like there's a workshop happening. Oh, so you basically are redeeming your ticket once you actually go. Yeah, so you exactly. Don't, you don't get that 80% drop off. We, yes. we do events. We, we get it. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Right. It's just a nice way of like uh you know if a customer is going to vote with their dollar you know how serious they are in terms of like wanting or like how much they find that content relevant it's really easy to subscribe to an rsvp list and like just forget mm-hmm. right but if you put down even ten dollars it just sort of feels like okay like i made a commitment and like even if i'm feeling lazy 20 minutes before it's like i paid ten dollars like right. gotta go <laughs> and i want, <laughs> might as well <laughs> and might and as I want well make it up card yeah they want the gift card exactly right. uh so so coming especially coming from a, a traditional retailer like gap do you think that this I think we use we say community all the time, but I think we you can see it playing out in brands that have gotten it right mm-hmm. because they're the ones that are actually successful. And do you think that that's so? How do you how do you scale that? Like you look at a company like Gap, and they obviously scaled other stores. There's there's a lot of stores now, and they're probably almost wondering not even probably they are wondering what what we do with all of them. Do we close them? Do we keep them? How do we make the most out of them? How do you scale a close personal experience with with a customer? Um, That's a great question. I think that um, there's been some examples recently and I think maybe Stitch Fix is one of the best ones. I know she was, uh, Christina was just on your show. Like, you know, to be able to personalize experiences at that level, Mm -hmm. it is possible, but it requires intention. And to be quite honest, I think it's much easier to build than to repair. So if you have been lucky enough to be able to build your retail business for the future within the last 10 years, Mm -hmm. you are benefiting from that perspective rather than kind of like what was in vogue way back when, when it was about opening in every mall across America, right? Like, you know, now this is about being really intentional about what markets you enter, where you have physical space and where you don't, right? And and those types of things. So just being able to have that perspective is already like you're ahead of the race because you don't have to unwind 
anything. Mm -hmm. So being able to build it now versus try and repair what was done before is already a huge competitive advantage. Uh, And I think, again, companies like Stitch Fix have proven that you can personalize the experience even at scale, Mm -hmm. um, but it requires that being part of your intent as you go into it um, and to be thoughtful about that process. So are you investing in in data management and and all of that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we would love to. I think that clienteling and CRM is like a huge opportunity, especially for a company that wants to be able to maintain that level of warmth and that um, kind of conversational tone, authentic tone with the customer. not necessarily investing in like AI or like data mm-hmm. science in the way that um, Stitch Fix has, because I think our value propositions are different. Like that is like literally the nucleus of their value proposition, right. which makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for us, it still is about brand and point of view and us offering something to the customer just in terms of the look and feel and the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we would love to be able to be seen as best in class in terms of customer service. Like if we can win at some of even those smaller touch points to begin with, we can figure out how data feeds into that for the future. So mm-hmm. I see it as more of like a CRM question, that customer relationship management, like how do we want to um, approach that as we get bigger? Right. And and as you do get bigger, are you considering other retail outlets, even even Stitch Fix? Like Oh yeah, like wholesale channels. Yeah. Um, to be honest, we haven't really yet. Um, I think for us, because we value the direct feedback from the customer so much, mm-hmm. like the customer informs literally everything that we do. So whether it's ticketed events or whether it's like, you know, a certain colorway of a sweater or like a different type of fit that she's looking for, like we're already getting that close loop of feedback and that's hard to give up. It's hard to put somebody like, you know, a middleman in between um, where you don't get to have access to that data and that relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, that being said, if Net-A-Porte came calling tomorrow, I'd pick up the phone, right? Like that's not <laughs> like we were saying no, um, right. just I'm because. Sure you, yeah, because I'm sure you have in your mind like the retail partners that you would consider and ones that you wouldn't. Right, exactly, totally. So, you know, I think for us, like we care about being in the closets of women across America because we think that we're offering a great value uh, and, and like a beautiful fashion point of view. So we would love to be part of their lives, however it is that they prefer to shop. Um, but for us, it is really hard to, um, think that we wouldn't be able to have that close feedback loop anymore. Um, So we are, you know, direct to consumer for a reason. uh, And we do want to be owning that customer relationship. But, um, you know, it would be interesting depending on depending on the retailer. Right. Depending who it is. Yeah. Because it's it's interesting to look at brands that built their whole businesses based on wholesale. Mm -hmm. That all got flipped around, messed up, dead end, everything. (laughs) And now they're figuring out how to move at least the majority of their business. And wholesale is is basically funding that because they're they're keeping those relationships. And so I can almost see it working out a little bit further down the line as you look to grow super expensive to, to open stores and do everything on your own. Yeah. Could wholesale like fund like 10, 15, 20% of the business? Well, because you'd still maintain like good amount of, of customer relationships, yeah, correct? Absolutely. So that's actually very strategic and it makes a lot of sense. Like if you want to enter like the European market or if you want to go to Asia, like it's very hard to do that on your own, especially mm-hmm. if you haven't raised institutional mm-hmm. funds, right? So like if you can partner with a retailer, again, like an Etaporte who has access to all countries in the world and can ship everywhere, even to China, right? Like then you are opening yourself up to a much bigger world. Uh, And again, I think if the retailer does a really great job of telling your story, then you don't really have anything to lose. It's really more about, you know, kind of how you can find the right mix um, for your business and how um, it can still sustainably run. Right. And so you mentioned that you came on, you you started the business from the perspective of Gap M&A. So what's your, what's your, end goal would you would you go under the gap umbrella if they, if they want if they called <laughs> you know if they I wouldn't not pick up the phone <laughs> I'm just kidding no uh I think that really actually the way I think about it is like even more broad and not even just speaking to modern citizen I think the market 
is going to look a lot more like beauty. And I know you guys cover beauty too. Like, you know, I think L'Oreal and Estee Lauder have been really smart to always be thinking about M&A. Of course, they're developing their own like brands and products and investing in, in the things that are already in their portfolio, but they're mm-hmm. also always looking to the market because I think that that's the future. You know, no individual consumer, I think, wants to wear a brand that is a billion dollar brand because it makes them feel less individual, right? And I think the world is like becoming more and more individual and there's more and more choice. And so mm-hmm. I think the the strategics of the world who figure out how to create an amazing portfolio um, will win and will be able to sustain mm-hmm. um, rather than trying to reinvent the same brands again or like kind of trying to polish, you know, the name on the door that already exists, like thinking about how they can invest in the brands of the future. Because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of back office and kind of like operational leverage that you can create, like, you know, e-commerce and like warehousing and so many things that like every single brand requires in order to to be able to fulfill their orders Mm -hmm. um but you can really cater to so many different segments of the market through brand um and through a portfolio of brands Uh, and i think that that is going to be the future um for a lot of the inks of the world right um it hasn't really happened as much in fashion yet there isn't as much m&a activity but i think that that will change Mm -hmm. um so what i we talk about internally is more just like let's be flexible because we never really know what the world is going to look like even even in the next two years. It's part of like why your guys' coverage is so relevant right now because it changes every mm-hmm. second right. uh, and every month there's sort of like a different perspective on kind of what the future of fashion is going to be. Right. Um, so I think for us, we're just trying to be as nimble as we possibly can, not overcapitalize the business so that, you know, should XYZ, you know, caller come knocking, that it's a possibility for us if we feel like it's going to be put in the right hands, it's going to be able to scale. You know, we believe Modern Citizen can be 100 million, 200 million plus business just simply because of our aesthetic and our and our price point. And we feel like we can touch a lot of women's lives and that's what we are aspiring to do. Um, but in terms of like what happens in the next like two to five years, it really just depends on what's going on in the market. I think that that's something we're, we're open to a lot of possibilities. That's, I think that's a, that's a great point about the billion dollar brand because not only is it really hard to achieve as a standalone apparel brand. Do people even really shop like that anymore? Yeah. I think what's hap- what we're seeing now happens points mm-hmm. points to no. But but do you think that if not, we always talk about this like direct to consumer bubble. Mm-hmm. There can only be so many brands. Yeah. But you know, when do you think we're going to get to a point where there's sat- complete saturation? Yeah. I mean, I think that like we're already starting to experience that if we are in that e-commerce 3.0 era, right? If it's like you're, if you're creating like the best direct-to-consumer shoes for dogs, right? Like it's like, mm-hmm. it's going to get a little specific and, mm-hmm. and how big those businesses can be. Not to say that those businesses shouldn't exist, but should all of them raise venture capital or should all of them be gunning for a billion dollar valuation? Like probably not. There are definitely some that warrant it. Um, and again, Stitch Fix is a great example of one that has been successful in the last couple of years. Um, but it doesn't need to happen in every category. Um, so I think just naturally, there will be a shakeout kind of thing. And I think that that's already kind of happening in terms of like how valuations are being set and those types of things. So it's just a question of um, when, not if. Right. Um, But I also do think that there's a huge opportunity for the brands of the future to break out because, um, you know, if the customer's expectation is that there's going to be a whole new set of names on the doors of their favorite shopping street, like somebody has to fill those doors. Mm -hmm. We'd obviously love to be one of them. Um, And I think that there's a huge opportunity for many brands to kind of like become like the next generation um, of retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a modern, it's a reckoning yeah. for retail. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we're just about out of time, but, but thanks so much, Jess, for coming in. Thank you so much for having me, guys. And thank you, Hillary. Of course. Thank you for listening. And a special thanks to Aditi Songol, the producer of this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and leave us any feedback you have. 